Um, Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Now, we're going to skip a couple of verses today. Not that I'm just skipping them just because I don't want to deal with them. I've already started on verse 30. I haven't finished verse 30. Um, I can't wait to do verse number 31. But today is Communion Sunday, and I wanted to do verse 32. And for some reason I'm not on schedule to hit it right at Communion Sunday, so I moved it. So I'll do 32 today, portion of verse number 32, and then I'll back up next week and go back to verse number 30. Is that okay with you? Oh, good, because if it wasn't, I'd have to start in 30 and keep going until I got to 32 today. But uh, we will just start with 32 this morning. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What an incredible question that is. What an incredible statement that is as well. And we're going to look at the statement side of it today, the first part, and it has to do with uh, what God has done. What God has done. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin to study his word here. Heavenly Father, when we attempt to understand you or what you have done, we confess how far short we come of thoroughly, fully understanding these things. We are very frail. Our minds are limited. And yet, you are the one who has recorded in your words so clearly, so simplistically even, what you have done. And I pray, Lord, that we will not get lost in the complication of it all and miss the beauty of this passage. As we study it through, only the Holy Spirit can work inside us to warm our hearts and to prompt our thinking and to change our wills and to conform us to the image of Christ. Only He can do that. So we submit ourselves, even now, to Your Word, to Your work. And we ask, Lord, that uh, Your great work will be accomplished in us today as we focus on these very simple and yet deeply profound words. Captivate us in every way we pray that we may respond with praise and thankfulness to you. Thank you for what you have done. Help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. It, it speaks often in Scripture that God loves us. Sounds like a simple thing to say. God loves us. Love, as you well know, is a noun, is a thing, it's a word. It's also a verb, which makes it interesting as well. Love is a verb, it's an action. And what's so interesting about this is that you can't really separate the two, can you? Because the only way to prove the one is to show the action to prove it. They go together. We don't just simply say the word love, but we prove it by the way we use it, the way we live. The Bible says that God loves us. 
most familiar verse perhaps in all of Scripture is in John 3, verse 16. For God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Such an action supports his claim, does it not? How do we know that he loves the world? The scripture says he gave his only begotten son. But, as you heard me read the verse, what did I leave out? But It's the smallest word in the whole thing. So, that's an adverb. You know what adverbs are for? They're to help you understand the verb better. It enhances the verb. It explains the, the nature of the verb. It, it's got a powerful place in describing that action. And we put the word so in front of the word love. For God so loved the word or the world. What does, what does that mean to add so as that little adverb there? The little Greek adverb says, in this way, God loves the world. In this way, in this manner, this is how God loves the world. He gave His only begotten Son. My favorite passage in all of God's Word will go back to chapter 5 of Romans, verse number 8. I love those, those words dearly. It says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. You might have the word commendeth. There, God commendeth. God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word demonstrates is, is such a great little word. Uh, the Greek word has to do with setting up a display. We've had that last week. You saw display set up with pictures on it of uh, events in the past, right? People and, and things that have happened in this church and. And we set up displays that you may look at it and remember. Well, God has set up a display too. He set up a display of His love for us. His display is Christ. The action is, He gave His Son, Christ died for us. That's the display of God's love. Now, what I find interesting in that, and I've said this before... But that little verse, God commendeth or God displays, demonstrates his love toward us, is what we call a present tense verb in the Greek means a continuous action. Which is, is a simple way to say that God didn't display his love once and hope that you just remembered it. But that he continuously displays his love for us. Yes, we know Christ died once, right? Scripture makes that very clear. But the death of His Son is God's eternal display of love. He won't take it down. Matter of fact, it won't be replaced by anything else. Nothing else is going to come along that's more modern. Nothing more relevant. Nothing more contemporary. God set up one display of His love. And that's His Son's death. He set that up. And it's never going to be superseded by any other display, ever. That's God's display of His love. 
If at any time you wonder if God loves you, you could ask Him and He will point to the cross every single time. That's His love for us. That's what the text says. God is always demonstrating His love for us. He gave a son. Christ died for us. Now what's amazing to me still in that verse is the part that I play. Romans 5 verse 8, it says, In that while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners. While you were yet a sinner. While I was yet a sinner. There we were, guilty of crimes against God and against His holiness. There we were condemned. There we were under His wrath. We were destined for eternal destruction. We were separated from the presence of God for all eternity as far as that was concerned. There in our filthiness, there in our unworthiness, there in our ingratitude, there in our rebellion, proving to be enemies of God by every word, every action, every thought, Why, even our existence was an affront to His holiness. For it says, while we were, and the Greek word is, while we were existing as sinners. God was demonstrating His own love for us. That's an amazing thing to me. That He sees us for who we are. And He loves us. There it says, Christ died on our behalf. There He took our place. There, He paid our penalty. There, He took the crushing blow of the curse. There, He bore the full wrath of God. That's an incredible passage. To satisfy the Father. To save our souls. Jesus died. That's the heart of the Gospel message. That's what we preach. And nothing less will do. Nothing less than Jesus Christ crucified on our behalf. Because if it wasn't for Him, we would still be lost. I told you before, I grew up hearing and believing that God was angry with me. Rightfully so, in my sin. But every week I was told that I needed to repent. And I'd do that, and then I was told the next week, you must have messed it up. Better fix it. Repent again. It was week after week after week. I lived under the disapproval of God. And I knew it. Even as a teen, I felt that. I was told how God had destroyed the Israelites in the wilderness because they disobeyed Him, and He can do it again. I was taken to frightening passages in Scripture of God's wrath. And all those passages were absolutely true. But the emphasis was how God did not hesitate to show His wrath on the sinner. I was not taught mercy. I was not taught that God was kind. I was not told He was patient. I didn't have peace, I knew that. I didn't have hope. Nothing I could understood. I often wondered, even as a teen, if I happened to make it somehow into heaven. 
How was I ever going to make it through eternity without doing one thing that would mess that up and he'd throw me back out? That troubled me. Because that's the way I was taught. Those teachings came to me, I heard, week after week after week. I did not know how much God loved me. That's why I like this verse, Romans 5.8. That's what it means to me every time I read it. What my God, my Father, and His love for me means to me now. This verse is really my testimony. When I think about it, it says it all that I want to say. There are many verses like that I know in Scripture, each adding some aspect to our understanding of that wonderful continuous display of God's love. It's very interesting to me when we go back to Romans chapter 8 and as we've been studying this passage the security of the believer now since January we've been working through an awful lot of verses and thoughts and such like that. Much has been said about why we are secure in Christ how it's possible, uh, how it works in our lives. We've gone through most of this chapter already, but here's something I find very interesting. It's not until you get to the last handful of verses, really the last seven verses or so, that you see the answer to why are we so secure in Christ. Verse 32 shows us something. It shows us how he loves us, in two words. In verse 35, it says that Christ loves us, speaks of the love of Christ. In verse 37, it says again, how much he loves us. And then down to the very last phrase of the chapter, in verse 39. What, can, what is able, nothing is able, to separate us from the love of God. It's almost like the dessert was being saved to the very end. <laughs> the love of God. Oh, you knew that all along. But you needed to hear the words too, didn't you? That He loves us. Today we're going to enter into the depths of that love. Truly, it's the depths of it. When we try to measure this question... How does he love us? The only way to show you that is by an action. And so today I actually have two actions set before you. Two words in verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Those are the two words. Did not spare. And now that's three words you say. No, it's one concept. Did not spare. That's one action. And the second is delivered him. The second action. Now I find something very fascinating grammatically here, and I'll just give you that because, well, I like to. Um, both of these verbs are what we call the aorist tense. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Done. That's the essence of the concept. It's done. It's a fact. It's completed action. He did not spare. He delivered. Both of them say it the same way. 
we call it as well the indicative mood, which is reality. This is reality. This isn't a maybe. This isn't a, well, I hope so. It's not conditional. If is not in the sentence. It doesn't go with these verbs. These are not potentials. These are history. These are facts. These are not theories. You see the difference? This is an action done. Just like last time we were in verse number 30. He uses the words here, he called, that's their sense, done. He justified, done. He uh, glorified, done. We're going to dig into that more later. But the essence is that they're complete. Already done. In God's work, completed. I like the fact that it also says that here in verse 32. These grammatical things I just supplied to you, because when you read it, he who did not spare his own son, well, that's done. But delivered him over for us all, that was done. Historical event, done. All of it pointing to exactly what John would write, that he gave his only begotten son. Done. God did it. God did it. I want to take you into the meaning of those words. Very deeply, I think. What does it mean by did not spare? What does it mean by he delivered? And what does it mean that it's done? What's the essence of this? I submit as I have all morning already. These are the actions that support the claim. He loves you. Let's talk about sparing. The text says he did not spare. He spared not his son. The commentary says it's a very old verb. I don't know what makes one verb older than another verb. It's just the way you look it up, I guess, and say, well, they've been using it for a long time. It's an old verb. Uh, But what's interesting about it is that, in reality, it's not used a lot in the Bible. But it is used specifically in the Bible. It's not carelessly used on the page. All right? When God says, I want to use that word, there was a particular reason it was reserved for that reason. And so, what we have are some examples of Romans 8.32 in other passages. I'll give you the first one, and let's go back to it. It's in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. You're going to know this story very, very well. But this is one of the very first instances of the word spare. In Scripture, in Genesis 22, I have a caption above my uh, chapter that says, The Offering of Isaac. And it says here, now it came about, in verse 1, now it came about after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he says, Here I am. God says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That's a stunning verse, isn't it? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, 
he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship. I love the next phrase. And return to you. Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. He says, I figured God could raise the dead. So he talked that way. He spoke that way to these servants of his. He said, we're going to go there and worship. Abraham knew exactly what he was called to do. But he added, and we will return. He anticipated God would be the one who would raise his son back. That's an incredible faith. But he stepped forward nevertheless. Abraham took the wood, verse 6 says, of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Boy, is that a passage to preach on. Mm. So two of them walked on together. They came to a place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Wow! Abraham, Abraham, he says, he says, Here I am. And he says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham raised up his eyes and looked into the hold, a ram caught in the thicket by the horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him there as a burnt offering in the place of his son. There's a lot of comparisons here, aren't there? When you think it through, a lot of comparisons. Uh, Spared. God says, Abraham, you did not hold back. You did not shield your son. You did not protect your son. You did not hold back. You did not spare him. Verse number 13, God provided a substitute for Isaac. That's a verse that pops up on the page very clearly. But with all the comparison that we can do, and much we can do that, as it reflects the intention of God, there is a huge contrast between the two passages, Genesis 22 here and Romans 8. God did not spare his son. God did not spare his son. Abraham was rescued in the nick of time, and so was Isaac. But Christ bore the full wrath willingly. 
he spared Abraham. And we could only guess, we could only guess if we were to step back and see the mind of God in this moment in Abraham's life. As he watched Abraham place his son on an altar. As Abraham picked up a knife. As Abraham took aim to plunge it into his son. He spared Abraham the horror of that moment, didn't he? He spared Abraham the sensation of bringing that knife down upon his son. He spared him the feel and the sound of driving the life out of his son Isaac. He spared him the view of seeing a bleeding body. Things which God did not spare for himself. Do you think it hurt God to do such a thing? To give his only begotten son? In Isaiah 53, passages I bring up often, in verse number 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In verse 5 of that passage it says, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then the verse that catches my heart every time. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. To put him to grief. So that he made his soul an offering for sin. He spared not his son. Scripture says. He spared not his own son. One commentator said. I don't know how you want to see this. Is this the bounty of God. That he did not withhold Christ. Or the severity of God. That he did not use favor. But afflicted and punished him. I'll read to you something else. That I thought was very profound. And. I thought maybe I should paraphrase this, but I, I couldn't. Quite honestly, I thought, I'll just have to read it to you as I read it. He did not spare even his own son, but gave him up. The depth of feeling implied in these words, sending his own son, is expressed even more vividly here. If this does not mean that, in a sense, giving up his only begotten and fathomlessly beloved son was for the father a genuine sacrifice, words no longer have meaning. It is possible to think of a judge who does not spare a vicious criminal, but pronounces on him the severe sentence he deserves. It is not inconceivable that such a judge might afterwards enjoy a good night's sleep. But what we have here in Romans 8.32 is something else. The following facts should be kept in mind. God, the judge, has a son. An only son, very precious to him. That son never committed any sin. In all that he did, he was ever pleasing to his father. Yet on this precious and beloved son, God now pronounces the sentence we deserved. It is a sentence immeasurable in its severity. It is carried out in every detail. 
God did not spare his son, did not mitigate the severity of the sentence in any way whatsoever. The son himself agreed with the father and the spirit in all this. He, the son, fully bore the horrendous curse. He drank the cup of unspeakable agony to the very last drop. We ask, but why was this curse lifted from our shoulders and transferred to the Son of God? The answer is, so deeply, intensely, and marvelously did God love the world that His Son, the only begotten, He gave, in order that everyone who believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Does that say much to you about God's love for you? Did he love his son less in order to love you or me? The answer is no. God's love is infinite because he is infinite. He must love his son to the fullness, and he did. And he loved you to the fullest as well. The fact that he did not spare his own son is active evidence of his love for you. Active evidence of his love for you. That's just word number one. You ready for number two? He delivered him. Delivered him over for us all. Interesting word here, delivered. It's a word we use to hand over something, to to give or deliver over. It's even, it's even used for betray, which is a curious idea. But usually we use it in the sense of giving it to the hands of another person, to give it over to the power of another person, or to be used by another person, to be judged, to be condemned, to be punished, to be put in prison, to be scourged, to be tormented, to even be put to death. You give them over to such a thing, to commit them to it to commend them to it, to permit it to happen. Now, most of you here have had children, now grandchildren for a lot of us. Would you walk up to a total stranger and hand your deeply loved child or grandson to them to do whatever they needed to or wanted to to that child? You say, ooh, I couldn't do that. Wow, is that a huge risk? What what would come of them? We don't know. The the whole concept of of how they would be treated. I don't know what I'd do. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't entrust my child, my grandchildren, to total strangers like that. I could not do that. God knew how his son would be treated. And he gave him over. He delivered him up. Jesus knew it as well. He told his disciples in Luke verse or chapter 18, verse 31, 32, and 33. He says, He took up, uh, with him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he will be delivered unto the Gentiles. And shall be mocked, and shall be spitefully entreated, and shall be spit on. And they will scourge him, 
and they will put him to death. And on the third day, he will rise again. He was delivered up. In my research uh, of the passage here, I found another section that I couldn't, I just couldn't uh, paraphrase for you. So I wrote this down on the page so you can hear it too. Several points are made about delivering him up. You deliver him up, the greatness of the surrender is made more emphatic. An absolute positive giving of him over to the humiliation of the life and to the mystery of the death. God didn't leave one finger on it to pull it back. He gave his son up. A completed act, right? He gave him up. Delivered him up. He delivered him up to suffering. It behooved Christ to become man. He might have been spared the trials of that generally, which is a lot of us men, trials that we rightly deserve because of our sins. Let the one sinless man be spared the suffering that sinners meet with as their due. But no, very few, if any, are the sufferings incident to human life that Jesus was exempted from. He was not spared the endurance of poverty. Into poverty he was born, into poverty he lived, in poverty he died. Poorer than the foxes that had holes and the birds of the air that had nests, he often had not a place where he could lay his head. He might have been delivered from temptation, but he was actually delivered to it. He was in all points tempted like we are. Tempted to distrust God, tempted to presumption, tempted to worldliness. The very bitter enmity was his portion. Perhaps few would have been more utterly detested than he while in this world. It is true that for a time he was popular with the multitude, but it would seem only as long as they thought he would provide them with loaves and fishes. But the hatred that assailed him was intense. It expressed itself in many vile and abusive epithets, in many false accusations, in many attempts, public and private, to take away his life. He was delivered up to ingratitude. It says, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There was only one instance out of multitudes in which those whom he benefited showed their utter unthankfulness. His own brethren did not believe in him and said that he was mad and would have kept him under restraint like a lunatic. He was delivered up to death. He was spared nothing that could make his suffering terrible. The treachery of Judas, the cowardice of the other apostles, the barbarous, brutal treatment to which he was subjected by Herod, by the soldiers under Pontius Pilate, of all the deaths that a man could die, there was none more torturing than the death on a cross. And there was nothing so degrading. He was not spared that. It was to make it all the worse, to add the contempt and the shame. He was crucified between two thieves. Ample true of the apostles' words. God spared not his own son. Add to this this thought. As I read about those things that he was delivered unto, I thought of this as well. He was delivered up to a spiritual suffering on the cross that we will never understand. 
far beyond what physical suffering could be. I cannot fathom the anguish of spiritual suffering like he suffered. The weight of the sins of the world was put upon him. His father turned away from him, forsaken him. The wrath of God, his eternal displeasure, all meted out in one moment upon Christ on that cross. He was delivered his son up to a punishment that only God the Father would know what it would be. Because God knew the fullness of his own anger. He knew the length of it. He knew the height of it. He knew the duration of it. And he knew the wages of sin is death. And he delivered his son up to that. Incredible, isn't it? As I read these words, and I'm stunned. I'm truly stunned. When I read and understand the depth of such words, that he spared not his own son, but delivered him. How can you say God doesn't love you? When you see such words attached to what God has claimed. He delivered him up for us all. Now, that's the important part as well of the passage. It doesn't just say he delivered him up. But look at the rest of the phrase. For us all. Now it gets personal. For us all. Paul's writing to the Romans. They were... A group of believers in Rome, they're Christians. He's writing to Christians in this book. As he's talking to them, he says, this is expressly what I mean when I say God loves you. He delivered his son. He spared not his own son for us all. Not one of us have come short of God's love here. Not one of us have had a lesser giving of that love. For us all. Isn't that what Jesus said? This is my body which is for you. This is the cup. Blood of my uh, of the new covenant. This is for you. God said this is for you. He did this for you. Now. This communion table says that. When we participate. We don't forget. That Jesus went to a cross, do we? Matter of fact, Jesus didn't go to that cross reluctantly either. He was willing. He did not resist his Father's will. He went. I add this too. It was his will as well. Here's a verse I want to just camp on as we just begin our thoughts toward this table. The willingness of the Son to not be spared to be delivered up for us all it says in Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God now listen who loved me and gave himself up same word he gave himself up for me wow 
can you ever doubt again that he loves you? That's what the passage says. My heart doesn't know what to do. On one side, I want to bawl my eyes out. The other side, I'm the happiest person on this planet. How can both emotions fit in one picture? That's exactly what he's done. That's why I, I recommend Psalm 22 for you. The first half, you bawl your eyes out. The second half, you'll be elevated to the highest heaven in praise. That's what this table always reminds me of. I come to it acknowledging the depth of my sin and how embarrassing that is. How absolutely degrading, how absolutely crushing it is to realize it was my sin that he paid for. And yet the other side of that is, I am so thankful he did. Because I couldn't do it. But he did.